Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. I am honored to be in dialogue today with my guest, Kelly Lytle Hernandez, who is the Thomas Lifka Endowed Chair in History at UCLA, University of California at Los Angeles, and the director of the Ralph J. Bunch Center for African American Studies, also at UCLA, University of California at Los Angeles. We are here to engage in a dialogue about her new book, Bad Mexicans, Race, Empire, and Revolution in the Borderlands. Kelly, I could not be more honored to be in communication with you today. Thank you so much for having me on. It's just a pleasure to talk to you about this book. Thank you. Uh, to begin, please tell us about yourself. Were there any formative life events that inspired you to become a historian? Mm. Well, I have to say that it's certainly my family that mm-hmm. inspired me to be a historian, that um, they're all historical thinkers and very much engaged with um, history books, books in general, and the conversations around our dinner table um, were often political, but also the politics was very historically informed. So it was my family who, who gave me that curiosity. What inspired you to write this book? Well, that also um, certainly has something to do with my upbringing. So I was uh, raised in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. In particular, I grew up in San Diego, California. And um, when I learned about the PLM, or otherwise known as the Magonistas, um, the rebels at the heart of the story, um, I learned about them first in graduate school. And I could tell immediately that their story was extraordinarily dynamic, consequential, and even cinematic. And I question, why did I not know this story growing up in the borderlands, right? It's a borderlands story. It was about my community and no one had ever told me it before. And I was just um, 
shocked and surprised and dismayed and, and wanted to make sure that um, I always wanted to dig in more and learn more about it. So I spent years um, reading about the, the PLM. And then when, to be honest, when Donald Trump referred to Mexican immigrants as bad hombres, I knew that there had been an autocrat before who had disparaged Mexican migrants as mm-hmm. bad Mexicans, that mm-hmm. autocrat being the dictator of Mexico, Porfirio Diaz. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to talk about um, all it was that President Trump at that time was stirring up when he talks about making America great again and disparaging Mexican migrants as bad hombres. And that story, um, in part, Um, that question we can help to answer by telling the story of the PLM. What is your book's message, thesis, and central argument? So this book is about a group of Mexican dissidents who came to the United States in the early 20th century, 1904 in particular, to stir up, to incite a revolution against a dictator in Mexico. That dictator's name was Porfirio Diaz. And so the story of bad Mexicans, whom you know the, the dictator disparaged these dissidents as so-called bad Mexicans, um, tells the story of them building their social movement in the United States and across the border, and also the counterinsurgency campaign led by both the U.S. and Mexican governments to try to shut down their revolution before it could incite an uprising that would remove Porfirio Diaz from power. And why Diaz is important is that he had invited um, many U.S. investors into Mexico to buy up land and and use labor. And so, of course, the United States government wanted to protect the interests of U.S. investors in Mexico. And so they joined with the Diaz regime in this counterinsurgency campaign to suppress the Magonistas uprising. Can you share with us the history a basic synopsis of the Mexican Revolution for those who might not be familiar and or who find the history of the revolution complicated to understand. Can you share a brief, if it's possible, summary of who did what to who in the Mexican Revolution as a background context to thinking about the Magonistas? That's an extraordinarily difficult question. (laughs) How do we summarize um, the world's first social revolution of the 20th century? And how do we summarize in particular for a US audience? Um, Let me say this, that the people at the center of this story had a particular set of dreams for Mexico um, that they encompassed in a more than 50 point platform. But at the heart of that was both economic transformation and social and political transformation, that they wanted to see labor rights protected, land that had been taken from indigenous and rural communities returned um, to those communities. They wanted to see um, democracy protected, the vote protected and child labor ended. So they had a particular set of economic and political dreams that were on the radical side of the spectrum. And so for them, the Mexican revolution was about achieving those goals. And at the outbreak of the revolution, there was great hope um, that that might be possible. But of course, there are interventions that happen both internally within Mexico, but also from the United States um, that help to um, 
derail some of the more radical aspects of the Mexican Revolution. So I think that um, that helps to explain how there is an uprising between 1910 and 1917 that ends with a new constitution that is extraordinary in its content with the number of rights that it protects for Mexican citizens, including subsoil rights. Um, but the contest about implementing that, that constitution, that document um, continues as you know, domestic elites and foreign elites try to um, determine the future of, of Mexico. How has the Magonista revolt been preserved in Mexican collective memory? Can you comment on its place in Mexican art, historiography, literature, political discourse? Absolutely. So um, when Mexico set about remembering the revolution and making it part of its um, historical canon, the PLM, the organizers and dissidents at the center of this story, often called Magonistas, um, they were identified as so-called precursors of the Mexican Revolution. And what that means is they did not go on to lead any of the armed battles or take major political positions, but they helped to incite the uprising. And so they are officially known as precursors to the Mexican Revolution in Mexico. And beyond that, um, since that time, largely the 1940s, um, they have been regularly remembered through all forms of um, memorial um, most significantly, or most recently, the Mexican government declared this year, 2022, to be the year of Ricardo Flores Magón. It's the centennial of his death. And so there's going to be a series of celebrations and remembrances um, for the, the man at the center of this story. What is meant by the term Juan Crow? Okay, great. So the term Juan Crow um, is something that scholars use to talk about the particular forms of racial discrimination and violence that persons of Mexican descent faced across the Southwestern United States, largely before um, the traditional civil rights movement of the 1960s and 50s. So what it means is the low wages that Mexican Americans and Mexican migrants faced across the region um, because they were deemed Mexican and racially inferior. It's about the forms of racial um, segregation, housing segregation that communities faced. And it's also about the extraordinary racial violence that Mexican immigrants and Mexican Americans faced across the Southwestern United States, namely in Texas um, between largely the 1870s and the 1920s. Um, so that's what Juan Crow is about. Of course, it is a way of um, signaling that um, the story of Jim Crow in the, across the United States, but you know, the, most of the literature is about the U.S. South, um, that there were aligned forms of racial discrimination impacting Mexican immigrants um, across the southwestern United States. What kinds of sources did you use oh, in right. your research? How did you find them? All right. Um, so one of the great things is that much has been written about the PLM, the Magonistas, and so there's a really deep historiography in particular in Mexico, of course, but also here in the United States. And I was able to use those footnotes and citations to track down the key set of documents at the heart of the Magonista story. And it's a really interesting archive because the cross-border counterinsurgency campaign against them 
agents within that campaign were able to infiltrate the United States postal system and basically steal and make copies of the PLM letters to one another. And then they would send those copies down to Mexico um, for an investigation, for um, using them to try to see if, if the U.S. or Mexican governments could track down the Maguanistas wherever they went, because they were living on the run um, pretty quickly after they arrived in the United States. And so those stolen letters are at the heart of the Maguanista story. And what we're able to do is really get to the front lines of their revolution, their conversations with one another, their disputes with one another, um, their political dreams, but also just their personal dreams. And really it's those stolen letters at, at the heart of this story. What role did journalism play in the Maganista uprising? How does your book advance our understanding of journalism in Mexico, journalism at the turn of the century, and journalism in general? Sure. Well, I, I don't think that this book advances our understanding of journalism in Mexico. There are scholars who are doing that work um, and dedicated to that. So I would um, certainly recommend um, looking at, at sure. their studies. Um, what this book does do is it provides a great introduction to people who are more familiar with U.S. history about um, the vibrancy of Mexican and Mexican-American journalism across the borderlands and how politically engaged it was, how connected it was to politics in Mexico. And so too often um, there's a void in the general public understanding of Mexican and Mexican-American history here in the United States. And this story of a group of journalists, dissident journalists who crossed the border to come in and cite a revolution back in Mexico, um, really is one way to peek into the depth and the breadth of um, Latinx journalism across the borderlands during this time period. And of course, you know, these writers, these visionaries, these freedom dreamers um, were at the center of creating a new script of possibility, right? Um, for Mexicans and Mexican immigrants, Mexicans and Mexican immigrants across the borderlands. What can we learn about resistance from the Magonistas? <laughs> you can learn that it's hard and counterinsurgency comes fast, right? So the yeah. Magonistas are um, very quickly after they arrive in the United States in Laredo, Texas in 1904, within weeks, they're being followed by agents from the Mexican government, they presume. And so they have to shut down their shop in Laredo and move to San Antonio and then um, St. Louis. And then after a series of arrests, they are um, they begin living on the run. And many of them begin living on the run. So I mean, we learned that uprisings, especially the radical ones, um, counterinsurgency is extensive and it's quick um, and can be coordinated across borders and this really is a pretty extraordinary story of how you create a social movement under those conditions. How does your book advance our understanding of police? What contribution does your book make to the history of police? Sure. So one of my primary identities as a scholar, as a historian, as, as a historian of policing, and one of the things I find most fascinating about the PLM story is that um, a Amid the efforts of the U.S. and Mexican governments working together to suppress the outbreak of the 1910 Mexican Revolution, Teddy Roosevelt 
establishes a new federal police force called the Bureau of Investigation in July of 1908, the summer of 1908. And that creation of a new federal police force um, actually by happenstance happens just a couple days after the PLM's most lethal, most dramatic set of raids on, on Diaz's Mexico. And so very quickly, the United States um, turns the, the power of this new Bureau of Investigation, which goes on via the FBI, to get, dedicate um, a good number of its agents to policing the PLM, to arresting them, to extraditing them, um, doing whatever possible to upend the beginning of their revolution. To me, that's important because rarely do we get to see how Mexican and Mexican history is at the heart of the story of US policing. And so this is just an example of when we begin to open up our lens to consider um, the centrality of Mexican American history to the US experience. Here you, you find things such as the FBI, right at the beginning, yes. mass migration. What does it mean to you to study Mexican history as a black woman? What is unique about the perspectives you bring to the Magonista revolt from your own personal lived life? What interconnections, if any, are there between your personal lived life's autobiography and the story you tell in the book? So that's a good question. Um, so I am an African-American woman who grew up in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands um, during the 1980s and the 1990s. And I think... Um, my experiences, my family experience, my perspective as a black woman, um, the various literatures and histories that I remain a part of, in particular helps me to see and to forefront the significance of white supremacy mm -hmm. and race at the, the heart of this story. Um, and so one of the ways that I'm able, in fact, this book about a revolution in Mexico, um, I'm very intentional to begin it with a lynching, an anti-Mexican lynching in Texas. And I think it is that lens, it is that perspective um, that helps me or brings me to, in particular, lift up the ways in which there are racial dynamics at play in this effort to suppress the outbreak of the Mexican revolution, because at the beginning of the 20th century, you see how white supremacy, late 19th century, um, is beginning to hinge from the settler state, the territory to an imperial form. And so as white supremacy crosses border, I think we have to keep a close look um, at the racial dynamics of the Magonistas uprising and the suppression of it. How does your book contribute to our understanding of international migration? So for folks who um, are curious to learn about the origins of mass Mexican migration to the United States, I'll find that in this book. And that origin story is about um, as US empire grows and US investors begin to march south into Mexico, they dislocate millions yeah. of Mexicans and that dislocation at the same time of constructing new railroads to stitch together the US and Mexican economies is what leads to the beginning of mass labor migration between Mexico and the United States. And so you begin to see that the incredible demographic changes in the United States in the 20th century is not about a set of 
individual decisions made south of the border, but rather it's structured in an economy that uh, a binational economy, a global economy that was being stitched together at the turn of the 20th century. So I would hope for folks to learn a little something about Mexican immigration history as they learn about or read about this group of Mexican dissidents who um, fought the power of foreign investors in Mexico. Did you experience any setbacks, adversities, or challenges during your research editing and writing and revising process? Do you feel comfortable sharing what you went through? How did you grow as a person from what occurred? Is there any advice you might give to other authors, academics, and writers from your experience? Well, I mean, I think COVID was a setback for all of us. This yeah. was a book that I wrote during um, quarantine. And so it certainly in many ways limited my ability to go to Mexico and, and work with the archives. Um, I was fortunate because I had written on the PLM for my last book and had a pretty robust digital archive and was able to work with some graduate students in Mexico City to um, pull together any remaining pieces that I needed for this book. Um, the benefit of that is that it helped me, I think, or encouraged me to lean more, more heavily on the secondary sources, many of which are already available on the story, and to think more conceptually about the meaning of this story um, for U.S. history in particular. I mean, I mean I, I'm an archive rat, and so if you let me just stay in the archive, I yeah. would stay there all day and all night long. But having to pull back and really understand um, the meaning of this story in the context of U.S. history, I think that um, was a unintended benefit of being restricted from access to the archive. What does your book teach us about justice and injustice or injustice within in, in brackets? That, <laughs> that's a good question, um, that the struggle is ongoing, right, first of all that many of the crises that we face today, extraordinarily deep roots, this just being one example of them. Um, and historical perspective, I think, can help us to devise strategies, avoid mistakes, um, and pursue the kinds of changes that are, will dig up at the root of the injustices we face. I mean, that's a statement about why we need historical thinking and practice and study amidst um, social justice movements. And I think that certainly um, plays in this case, but across, you know, I'm also quite involved in the movement and mass incarceration it certainly plays out there as well. In this case, I think it, this story will help people to understand um, those deep roots of anti-Mexican sentiment, legislation, and policy and structures um, here in the United States. If you had an expanded word limit, what aspects of the Maganista revolt would you include in this book that you could not? Were there any aspects of this history that you had to omit due to space constraints, but which are nonetheless important for their own sake? Oh, there's just so many stories I had to leave on the cutting room floor mm. of the ingenuity of the PLM and their activities. Um, so that, unfortunately, I had to cut many of those um, stories. Also just for streamlining, streamlining the narrative. Um, they were so active across the United States, in Mexico and beyond, that every foco, every cell, you know, has a story to tell and you just can't be comprehensive 
with this kind of, of story. So that I think um, would be the, the first thing. I mean, I hope for me that this book is an introduction for many people to the PLM in particular, but again, Mexican American history writ large. And so I'm not so concerned about the things I had to leave out, but really hopeful that it pulls more people in to wanting to know more about Mexican American history in particular, Latinx history in general. Um, so that's that for me is the goal of the book. In regard to specific historical events treated in the book, can you comment on the importance of El Plan de San Diego? For those who are not familiar, can you explain what it was? Sure. So after the Mexican Revolution begins and after the PLM, um, at least the form of it, led by Ricardo Flores Magón, really begins to decline, there is an uprising that happens, um, you know, begins in Mexico, crosses the border to Texas with a plan to create a army for all races and peoples that will overthrow really white settler supremacy across the southwestern United States. The army um, seeks to enroll indigenous, Mexican, Japanese, um, and other folks, non-white folks, to participate in an uprising that will um, kill any white male over the age of 16 and seize lands across the Southwest United States. And among the first lands to be seized were to be given to African-Americans as a sanctuary from white supremacy and as to indigenous peoples as a sanctuary from settler occupation. This Plan de San Diego um, erupts in July of 1915, and it, it generates an extraordinary backlash um, across Texas in particular. Um, where it where it occurs, and you know, sheriffs and marshals and vigilantes across the region participate in a suppression campaign that is extraordinarily brutal. And historians now call that suppression campaign La Matanza, the massacre, in which anywhere between three hundred and some people have estimated as high as five thousand Mexicans and Mexican Americans are are murdered in retaliation for this plan of liberation. And so that's the relationship between Plan de San Diego and La Matanza. And the relationship to the PLM is that um, several of the people who participated in Plan de San Diego were all PLM adherents, members of Texas Focus. And it, you know, it's often seen as that the Magonistas or the PLM inspired this uprising, this radical uprising for that was anti-capitalist and anti-racist. Um, Can you share with us a basic outline of the life of Ricardo Flores Magón, or at least a, bi a synoptic biography of who he was, the individual behind this movement? So Ricardo Flores Magón was a journalist based in Mexico City. And in the early 1900s, he starts alongside his brother, a newspaper called Regeneración. And in that newspaper, they begin to question the, the Diaz regime. At first it's under sort of cloak, but by um, 1903, 
they were outwardly challenging the Diaz regime and saying things like the Diaz regime had made Mexicans the quote servants of foreigners and that the Diaz regime was despotic and autocratic. Um, and so this is happening at a time when the dictatorship um, has criminalized really critique of any government member of government. So they're, create, they're committing crimes by saying these things about Porfirio Diaz. Um, and so they're arrested numerous times. They're sent to a horrid prison in Mexico City, Belém prison. And every time they get out, they keep writing, they keep protesting. Until 1903, when the Diaz regime issues a gag order against them, prohibiting any newspaper in Mexico to pub from publishing the words of Ricardo Flores Magón and his friends. And it's that gag order that inspires them to leave Mexico and come to the United States to be able to continue speaking truth to power and continue um, inciting the outbreak of the 1910 Mexican revolution. Now, that's his sort of professional profile, but I would say personally, Ricardo Flores Magón was a brilliant man who was a writer who had the power of, of the word. And that certainly was his sword. He also was irascible. Right and could be vitriolic um, against his own friends and colleagues if they did not um, follow him politically. And so he's an interesting character who has um, wonderful dreams, but often problematic um, relationships with people with whom he's living and working in struggle. Can you tell us about Margarita Magon? What role did she play in the revolt? Yeah, I don't know if that's, you're talking about his... Margarita, Mother? yeah, it, it, yeah. What role did she play in relation to him? And can you comment on her role in resisting French rule? Oh, okay. I thought you meant the PLM uprising. Um, well, there's a story um, that's been recorded by Ricardo's brother Enrique Flores Magón that their mother Margarita Magón um, participated in the battle of what's now known as Cinco de Mayo, right? When Cofrio Diaz um, was able to stop the French army from um, entering Mexico City. Um, so there's a story that she um, and her soon-to-be husband, Teodoro Flores, um, supported the Diaz, well, supported Diaz in, in that battle. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Um, so it's a really, it's, a, uh, it's ironic that Ricardo Flores Magón and his two brothers grow up to become involved in the anti-Diaz um, uprising because their parents had been supporters of Diaz and actually helped to bring him to power. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Can I ask you about the significance of the relationship between Magon and Emma Goldman? In what ways was Magon influenced by her ideas? And likewise, can you comment on the relationship between Bakunin and Magon, the ideas of Bakunin and Magon? 
Well, I, I can, I'll speak to the Emma Goldman piece. Um, there is there are whispers in the archive that Ricardo Flores Macom met with um, Emma Goldman when he was living in St. Louis, Missouri, and working on Regeneracion. We don't know what their conversations were. There's no record of the substance of their conversation that I'm aware of. Um, but we do know that um, she's about to publish one of her, her major pieces um, defining or giving us her definition of anarchism, sort of radical feminist anarchism. And so the, my assumption is that they were having those questions or they were having those conversations um, about anarchism as he was making a shift in his own politics from socialism to anarchy. And so perhaps she influenced him. Um, he would go on to become an anarcho-feminist as well. Perhaps he influenced her in terms of internationalism. Um, but that's not totally clear, but we do know that there was a relationship between Emma Goldman and Ricardo Flores Magom that you know, likely um, they influenced one another um, politically, ideologically. So for me, the significance of this book, why it matters to, to have written it for a US audience, in particular um, English language audience, although it will be translated as well, is that the, the story of the Magonistas really strikes at the heart of US history in ways that we haven't um, been able to see because they're not included in um, the canon. And why it's important is because um, their story is, really central, it's an uprising against the expansion of US empire at the turn of the 20th century, in particular, um, a white supremacist empire as the United States moves from um, invading indigenous territories across the North American continent to investing around um, in Mexico in particular. Um, so the Magonistas uprising is an uprising against the expansion of U.S. empire. So that's how they're at the heart of, of the U.S. story. Um, their story is also at the heart of the beginning of mass migration from Mexico um, to the United States. And their uprising is central to understanding resistance against white supremacy within the United States. Um, the ways that they have to organize and navigate the, the rules, written and unwritten rules of Juan Pro or white supremacy in the United States um, helps us understand what Mexican immigrants and Mexican Americans in particular are facing under Juan Pro. So that's some of the reasons why taking this story that's typically understood as a Mexican history and contextualizing it within the frame of U.S. history is important. It helps us to understand U.S. history better. Now we often talk about Ricardo Flores Magón as the central character, and there's really no disputing that in many ways, but there are also many other key um, players in, in this story. Um, some of them are like Librado Rivera, who was a teacher from San Luis Potosí. He was a super quiet and reserved man who um, they called him El Fakir for his really kind of ascetic way. So he doesn't say much, but he's one of the most dogged and dedicated um, revolutionaries who follows Ricardo Flores Magón on the path from socialism to anarchy. Um, there are people like um, Antonio Villarreal, who had been a literature professor in Mexico and actually had participated in a, a duel, had won a duel, killing a man and gone to prison in Mexico um, before he comes north 
um, as a so-called liberal or member of the PLM. He goes on to join the PLM. And there are women, extraordinary women who really hold this thing together with all these men are getting arrested and in prison across the country is the women who hold this together. Wow. Um, and so there are people like Maria Bruce de Talavera, who is Ricardo's lifelong partner, who helps to smuggle rebel correspondence to him in and out of the LA County jail after he's arrested in Los Angeles. How does she do that? She pretends to be like this kindly woman and partner who's gonna pick up his dirty laundry and drop off clean laundry for him. But what she had done was she had sewn into the seams of his clean clothes, this rebel correspondence letters to and from um, people in the movement and herself. And so she really helps to hold the revolution together when Ricardo Flores Magón is in prison. So that's just a few of the characters at the center of this story. Do you consider Ricardo Flores Magón a tragic hero? Why or why not? That's a good question. I, I see Ricardo Flores Magón as a problematic hero. Um, his tragedy was of his own making, I would say, in, in many ways. Um, or as great as tragedy. So Ricardo Flores Magona, as we talked about earlier, was this brilliant political thinker and intellectual and a writer. And it's his words that really helped to inspire um, many people to come to the revolution or at least think about revolution. Um, and he really plays a significant role in his refusal to be quiet in his ability to write. And so he is a hero in some senses because he helps people to see the conditions of their lives and to come to an understanding that um, things can change, right? To inspire them to, um, to work toward change. He's also tragic um, in the sense that he has a personality that um, can be quite combative even. So the person who can take down a tyrant is also the person who will attempt to take down a friend if they don't follow him on the path. And so in that sense, Ricardo Cruz Magón is a tragic character um, that um, as one historian has written that his mind really was mightier than his personality. Oh. And so in that sense, um, yeah, I, get, I think, I guess he's tra tragic, you describe it that way. On page eight in your book, you write as follows. Few people in the United States know much about the Mexican Revolution and even less about the men and women who incited it. Typically, the extraordinary story of Ricardo Flores Magón and the Magonistas is folded into the corners of Mexican-American history which itself is a little alone in the United States. History textbooks have had little to say on the subject. And until recently, legislators in Arizona all but banned the teaching of Mexican-American studies in K-12 classrooms. Meanwhile, US publishers and film producers persistently struggle to promote Latino voices, content, and experiences. However, as historians of Mexico and the Mexican-American experience have long made clear, you cannot understand U.S. history without Mexico and Mexicans. Can you elaborate on this problem? Why is this the case? And what do you suggest could be done to promote the study of Mexican history in American culture? What can be done so that Mexican history is taken more seriously in American education and U.S. public discourse? 
So one of the claims that I make in this book, and it's not an original claim, is that the 1910 Mexican Revolution transformed the United States by triggering a mass migration out of Mexico and into the United States. Um, it really is the bedrock of um, the birth of the future Mexican-American generation. Many people in the United States today, many Mexican-Americans, contract their family lineage back to the revolution. And so I'm arguing, I'm trying to put forth the idea that the Mexican Revolution is a critically significant event in the history of the United States, that um, it transformed who we are as a people, and therefore it's a part of our story. Um, why we haven't been able to see that story, you know, there's multiple reasons for that. Of course, it's the blinders of a nationalistic form of history, um, which is common. It is also um, the refusal to engage with Mexican-American stories within the textbook and the canon of American history or U.S. history in particular. And, you know, as I say in the book, this is not a struggle just for publishers. It really is across um, media and storytelling industries. So how do we redress it? Um, there's many things that have to happen. We have to continue to diversify who we accept um, as storytellers um, in, in the United States, the storytellers of our U.S. history in particular. Um, we need to continue to build Mexican-American, Latinx studies programs, ethnic studies across the country. Um, we need to shake up the canon and create entree points um, that are um, possible or accessible to new narratives. And this is what I think is just so brilliant about the 1619 project. Well, there's many things that are brilliant about it, but it really shakes up the settler narrative of the United States and creates a new um, way of thinking. And that has created possibilities for many fields of study. And so I'm eternally grateful um, to the work that they've done with um, the 1619 project to open up new possibilities in the, in the story of the United States. And I'm hopeful that uh, many of us can, can leverage that, right, to diversify the so-called American story with um, indigenous folks, Latinx stories, API folks, queer folks. I mean, the story goes on and on and on, um, but the shakeup, you know, has to happen first, right, the opening of the doors. So I think all that needs to happen Super excited to be a part of that, that movement of transforming U.S. history and opening its doors to all the communities who have been impacted by the creation of the U.S. state. How did the Magnesis perceive the church? Um, is it possible to, is it appropriate to ask you about the ways they viewed the Catholic church and how did they think of Christianity either in contradiction of the church? What role did Christianity play in their thinking and how did they view the Catholic church as an entity? So that's a good question because it really points to the long historical tradition that the Magonistas, the PLM, were um, living within. And so going back to the Spanish colonial period, of course, you have the um, dominance of the Catholic church over society and politics. And with the war for revolution, the Mexican war for independence between 1810 and 1821, um, one of the goals of the, the people who were fighting that revolution, of some of the people fighting the revolution, was to diminish the power of the Catholic Church in governance. And so the group that comes out of the revolution proclaiming themselves to be liberals in the liberal tradition had worked for decades by the early 20th century to curb the power of the Catholic Church in Mexico. 
And so the, the Magonistas are working within that tradition in the sense that their quarrel was with the power of the institution of um, the Catholic church. Some were people of faith, but disagreed with the power of the church. That would evolve over time as some members of the PLM would become anarchists and they were you know, steadfast against the church and private property and the state altogether. Um, so that's the long tradition that they were working within. Can you comment on the American role in repressing and suppressing the Maganista revolt? Absolutely. I mean, that's the centerpiece of the story is to uh, re- recall and remember the centrality of U.S. agents in trying to suppress the outbreak of a revolution in Mexico. So very quickly after Ricardo Flores Magón and his friends arrive in the United States, the Diaz regime reaches out to the U.S. government and says, yo, you've got these radicals up there. We need to silence them. They're trying to cause problems. And the United States government Um, like the U.S. Department of State and others, keeps their eye on them. But it's an outbreak of a um, labor revolt, labor strike at an American-owned mine in Cananea, Mexico, um, that turns violent, that gets the attention of the United States government um, in the sense that if if Mexican workers were going to revolt against U.S. investors in Mexico, And if there was some kind of relationship between these dissidents that had arrived in the United States and that revolt, they wanted to shut down that that social movement that was growing. So it's after that uprising in Cananea, Mexico in 1906, that the United States government really goes all in in trying to suppress the the PLM. Um, The U.S. Department of State instructs consular officials in Mexico and in the borderlands in particular to keep tabs on Mexican rebels in Northern Mexico. One consular official from Mexico actually spends a considerable amount of time um, traveling across the borderlands and working with US marshals and others to coordinate arrests. And the US Department of Labor and Commerce, which oversees immigration service, works with um, Arizona Rangers and others to arrest as many um, Magonistas as possible and to deport them out of the country um, into the hands of the Mexican government. There are other cases in which U.S. marshals and others um, arrest um, Magonistas across Texas, Oklahoma, and elsewhere, um, subject them to extradition campaigns. And so these are all actions of the United States government and U.S. agents um, on the government payroll to try to suppress the outbreak of the Mexican revolution. And it didn't work, right? So the PLM is always able to stay just one step ahead of the cross-border counterinsurgency campaign. And by 1910, they had really sowed the seeds for mass revolt. As a final question to ask you before we wrap up, you end the book with the following quote, the men and women who built the PLM were ordinary people migrants, exiles, and citizens, farm workers, sharecroppers, miners, intellectuals. Most of all, they were rebels. Despite their internal disputes, they comprised an extraordinary political source. In the process of confronting the Diaz regime in Mexico, they rattled the U.S. empire, challenged the global color line, threatened to unravel the industrialization of the American West, and fueled the rise of policing in the United States. Ultimately, the uprising they incited triggered a demographic revolution giving birth to what is now the largest non-white population in the United States, even after the PLM 
collapsed, their legacy inspired one of the most significant race rebellions and massacres in U.S. history. Some of the most powerful people on earth tried to suppress them and their story, but Ricardo Flores Magón and the Magonistas altered the course of history, defining the world in which we live by defying the world in which they lived. Why did you end the book with these specific words? Well, it's really hard to sum up the Magonista story, right? Because their legacy lived on and continues to as inspiration to many radical organizers. Um, but I think at the end of this book, I, I wanted to emphasize the fact that what bound this group together was their defiance of a social, political, and economic order. And that in my greatest and wildest dreams, right, Latinx youth in particular are able to read this book and see themselves in this history. Um, that they too are ordinary people and that they can be extraordinary historical actors. And so I think that's why I wanted to end the book uh, with that particular statement about the ordinariness of them as human beings, right? They're problematic. um, They've got issues. They're human, most important. But they also had dreams, right? And they had a community that they built with and they imagined a world different than the one that they were given. And so that's why I of the book that way. Is it okay to ask you, what are you working on now? Is your current research project, what have you been working on next after this particular book as a subsequent project? Well, very briefly, I'm, I'm working on my Million Dollar Hoods project that I, I do with a group of um, scholars based in, in Los Angeles. And by scholars, I mean people who are formerly at the university and people who are um, the, the leaders of the movement and mass incarceration in LA. So I'm spending quite a bit of time with Million Dollar Hoods and thinking about my next book project. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. As we bring our dialogue to a close today... I'm Ari Barbalat, your host on the New Books Network podcast. I've been blessed to be in dialogue today with Professor Kelly Lytle Hernandez. We have been discussing her new book, Bad Mexicans, Race, Empire, and Revolution in the Borderlands, published by Norton and Company, 2022. Dr. Hernandez is Thomas Lifka Endowed Chair in History and director of the Ralph J. Bunch Center for African-American Studies at UCLA, University of California at Los Angeles. Thank you. Thank you very much.